Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 in your Bibles today. Well, this week my family had the privilege of going to the Lead Center for a dramatic play. And it was very well done. So many people with so much skill putting the work and effort into bringing that story to life with the musicians, the actors, the writers, the technicians, the ones who built the scene, and all of that work coming together to create a story, a drama that is supposed to capture life and what is all involved with living and dying and joy and sorrow and hope and disappointment and all of that together. Well, drama has a certain power to be able to move us and to be able to communicate powerfully. And so when God decided to give us a book of revelation from himself, he created a very dramatic book. It's a book of dramatic action from the beginning of the story until the end of the story, where you're there looking as God unfolds the universe by the power of his word in Genesis to bringing judgment upon the oppressors in Egypt and rescuing his people, to all of the drama of the Old Testament, and then, of course, the ultimate drama when we come to the cross and the resurrection. And the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is a book of history written in advance. It is very dramatic and has tremendous power to be able to communicate. When God chose to give us his book, he did not just give us a book of philosophy or theology, but he gave us a book of history, a book of narrative, a book about people and their actions. He gave us the ultimate drama, the greatest story ever told. And here we are in the final part of the greatest story ever told, and God has set the scene for us. The stagehands, like John, have written down for us the heavenly throne room of God, a description of that heavenly throne room. And it is from that heavenly throne room that then all of the dramatic action upon the earth is going to take place as it proceeds from the actions of God and his Christ and the angels who are in heaven here in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Now, two weeks ago, we were in Revelation chapter 4. Last week, we had a sermon on application, an apologetic for the throne of God, for his power, for his dominion, for his right to worship. And two weeks ago, when we were looking into Revelation 4, we had an, an awe-inspiring scene set before us, the scene of the throne of the universe, if you can imagine, the brilliance of God, like a diamond or a ruby shining from the throne, the sea of glass that is before the throne, and this emerald rainbow-like radiance around the throne with the 24 thrones and the four living creatures and all that is there in that awesome scene, giving glory and honor and praise to the one who sits upon the throne. Well, that scene of God's throne room, in continuance with what Ezekiel saw, what Isaiah saw, what other prophets saw when they saw the glorious throne of God, that here in Revelation is, is reiterated, it is set before our mind's eye again in order to introduce the drama that is in Revelation chapter 5. As glorious as Revelation chapter 4 was, it was really just setting the stage for the action that takes place here in Revelation 5. And so we're going to go through Revelation 5 step by step. I'm not going to read the whole chapter at the beginning, but we're going to try to unfold it in dramatic fashion to be able to capture some of that power that is here in how God has revealed this amazing future event for us. So let's have a word of prayer before we dive into the scripture text here today. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for entrusting us with your book, your words your revelation. Thank you for giving it to Jesus Christ so that he might give it to John, so that John might write it down and send it to the seven churches, and it might be passed down through the centuries until it came to us here in our time, in our place, in our generation. We thank you for calling us out of the darkness and into your glorious light so that we can worship the one who created the heavens and the earth and all things in them. And that we can, therefore, know as we read from your book what your plan is for your world, 
for your universe, for all of mankind. Lord, we pray that you would give us the heart of worshipers this morning as we dig into your text. That the songs that we sang, as as wonderful as they were in our worship, that's not the extent of our worship this morning, but all that we live, all that we do, all that we say, all that we are in our heart. We wanted to honor and glorify you and your son, Jesus Christ. Give me the power to lead in that worship as I speak, and give us all hearts that are responsive to your word, that are filled with the power of faith to be able to glorify and honor Jesus Christ as we have been saved to do. Amen. Well, I want to show you our outline for this morning. You see that the theme of Revelation chapter 5 is the worship of the Lamb. That's what Revelation 5 is all about. In fact, I thought this week that Revelation 5 might be the most Christ-exalting chapter in all of the Bible. Think about which chapters of the Bible focus on the glory of Jesus Christ, the worship of Jesus Christ, the honor of Jesus Christ, that lift him up, and there are many. I don't know if there's a passage in Scripture that is as explicit and as devoted to that subject and as comprehensive in it as Revelation chapter 5. This is the chapter. If you want to worship and honor Jesus Christ, that's what it's all about, the worship of the Lamb. And you see here our outline is in four parts. The scroll, the angelic proclamation, the Lamb, and the worship of all creation with the verses there alongside of it. And the reason why I've gone with this outline this morning is because that is actually the grammatical outline of the chapter. I don't always follow the grammatical outline, but because this chapter is a drama, I wanted to preserve the drama of the passage in the way that I'm teaching it and presenting it to you. So I'm just going to follow the outline of the passage grammatically because I want to capture that drama that is there, starting in verse 1. So read verse 1 together with me. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. That's the scroll. That's the beginning of the drama here. You see, It's the beginning of chapter 5, but chapter 5 is not a new beginning. It is a continuation of what we've had in chapter 4 because he draws our attention back to the one who is seated on the throne. The central focus of chapter 4, the one who was introduced first there in verses 3 and 4 in the previous chapter, after having spread out from the central image of God on his throne to describe the living creatures and the worship of the 24 elders, he comes back to God and focuses on one particular aspect of him, and that is his right hand and what he has in his right hand, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And so the question as we come to the text I know many of you have read the book of Revelation. I know many of you have studied the book of Revelation. And so you've already got a great idea about what this scroll is. But put yourself in the place of the original readers. They received this book from John, who was written to them from his exile on Patmos. They've heard the letters to the churches. Now they've been introduced back to the main subject of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, of the things that must soon take place. And they've been hearing about John's vision of God on his throne. And now their attention is drawn by the apostle to this scroll in the right hand of the one who is on the throne. And your question would be, what is the scroll? And throughout the chapter, John is going to keep that a mystery. This is a key element of drama. You have to create suspense. And the suspense here, I don't want to spoil for you. I want you to experience the suspense of wondering, what is the scroll? So I'm not going to give you a detailed definition, but as we go through, it's going to become more clear, especially when we get into the following chapters in the months to come. Now, there are some remarkable things about the scroll. First of all, whose hand it's in? It's in God's hand on his throne. Secondly, it's written on both sides, which designates a fullness, a complete writing that it is full and taken up with its subject matter. It couldn't just fit on one side as they liked to do in ancient times. They didn't like to write on both sides of the scroll, but sometimes you had to. And this scroll is full of material. And then thirdly, it is sealed with seven seals. Normally, you might seal a scroll with a single seal. For it to be sealed with seven seals is unusual. And so 
It's a remarkable book, and it's one that is drawing our curiosity and interest. Now, if you're those original readers of the book and you've never read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you still have some clues as to what this scroll might be if you have read well your Old Testament. I encourage you all to be reading well your Old Testament. As we go through the study of the book of Revelation, you will see that it's not possible to understand the ultimate book of the Bible unless you have understood all of the books that come before it. In particular, books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Psalms. A lot of these key Old Testament books that are giving the imagery, the information that is the background for what is here. It's like trying to read the last chapter of a novel without reading the rest of the novel. It's not going to hit you the same way. It's not going to be understood. You'll make a lot of mistakes in understanding and reading it because the Bible is a story, and you've got to know the previous parts of the story. So are there any Old Testament counterparts to this scroll that is in God's hand? Well, one that comes to my mind is Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I put the verses up here for us, but I'd like to go back and actually look at it in its context. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Right before Daniel, where we had our scripture reading, we have Ezekiel. And this is towards the beginning, as you see, of the book of Ezekiel, where God is calling Ezekiel to his mission, giving him his words. Our scripture reading today was from Daniel. And Daniel is where you've got God on his throne And the Son of Man comes to receive the kingdom from God. Well, keep that in mind as we keep going this morning. But in Ezekiel chapter 2, pick it up in verse 8 in your Bibles. God is speaking to him and he describes him as Son of Man, which is an Old Testament way of saying, you're just a human being and I am God. But you, Son of Man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold... A hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. The scroll that comes from God that he gives is a revelation of the judgment of God in lamentation and mourning and woe that's written on both sides, just like the one that is described here in Revelation. It comes from God. It's a word of prophecy. What is prophecy? A prophet is someone who speaks God's words. God's words in a human mouth, that's prophecy. And here Ezekiel is called to this, and so he has to receive from God God's prophecy, God's words about the coming lamentation and mourning and woe. Another passage that is very similar and gives some insight into this sealed book that is in God's hand is in Daniel. I told you, Ezekiel and Daniel, very important for understanding God's word. Turn to Daniel chapter 12 in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 7 through 12 is essential understanding for the book of Revelation. I think of Revelation as really the sequel of the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7 through 12. But Daniel 7 through 12 reveals much, but there are some things that it does not reveal. And those things were saved for a future time. In Daniel 12, you see the title in the ESV translation there at the beginning of the chapter is the time of the end. And it starts this way. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Well, that sounds very similar to what Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse, which forms the background for what is fully detailed in the book of Revelation. This time of trouble that is unparalleled in human history. And he continues, But at that time your people, that's the people of Israel, shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, We'll see, that's what the book of Revelation ends with. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now notice verse 4. But you, Daniel, 
shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So God has revealed much about this time of the end, but there's also things that are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And even the understanding of what is written is somewhat shut up and sealed until the time of the end that people want to search in and understand everything that is here. But until Christ comes and unveils more, then it's going to remain sealed. Also, in the same chapter from Daniel 12, verse 4, just go down to verse 9, where he repeats that same concept. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And you can read the rest of the chapter, but let's head back to Revelation. So, we're looking at the scroll, the book, the seven-sealed book in the right hand of God, and we're wondering what exactly is in this scroll. And that leads us into the second part of the chapter, the next act in this drama, and that is the angelic proclamation in verses 2 through 5. So back in the text, let's read verses 2 through 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, The next thing that your mind's eye sees on the stage here in heaven's throne room is the mighty angel who comes forward and he proclaims to all of creation, everything that is in heaven, everything that is on the earth, everything that is under the earth. That's God's heaven, that's living people, that's those who are dead in Sheol and in Hades. His proclamation goes out to all sentient life and he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this adds more dramatic tension to this book. What is this book? How is it that it is of such importance that you have this proclamation of worthiness attached to it? Now, heaven seems to know something about what this book is, or else this call would make no sense to go out and say, well, who is worthy? You'd have to know what the book is to know whether or not you should step forward and say, oh, I'm worthy. And John doesn't tell us whether or not anyone was foolish enough to present themselves and say, I'd like to give it a shot, like pulling the sword out of the stone. It could be a truncated account. Maybe somebody attempted and was told, no, you are not worthy. But as the search goes out through heaven and earth and the underworld, it comes to that point where it is clear that no one is worthy to open this scroll. Now, think back to Ezekiel and Daniel Ezekiel was worthy to eat the scroll and to proclaim God's word of lamentation and judgment and woe back in his time. Many prophets were deemed worthy to be able to carry out the prophetic ministry that God had given to them. But when it comes to this ultimate revelation, when it comes to the final human drama and God's final actions to unveil that, to enact that, to bring that to pass, no human prophet is worthy of. Not Moses, not Ezekiel, no one who's alive, no great preacher, no evangelist, no saint, no Israelite, no American, even no angel. No one is worthy to open this book. And that tells you something about the importance of this book. Now, John, he seems to have some intimation of the importance of the scroll, because when he finds out, when he discovers that there is no one who is worthy to open it, he begins to weep. But he doesn't just begin to weep, he begins to weep much, loudly or excessively. And that's not a reaction of someone who just has idle curiosity and they're thinking, well, I'd really like to know what's in that book, and sadly I'm not going to get to find out. No. This kind of lamentation, this kind of weeping is done by someone who has an idea of the importance and significance of this scroll. 
if this scroll remains sealed, if this scroll is not opened, then that would be the most tragic event or non-event in human history. You're starting to get some idea of how important this is. Now, the search goes through heaven and earth and under the earth, and that brings up an important idea. Well, before I get to that, let's talk about this verse. As far as being worthy to open the scroll, to be able to reveal it, to proclaim it, to communicate it to others, Ezekiel, in chapter 3, shortly after what we read about how he was supposed to eat the scroll and take God's words and reveal the judgments to the people, When he was sent on his mission, he says, I came to my people and I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. This tells you something about the weightiness of God's word, God's judgments. To receive the word of God is an overwhelming experience. For seven days, he sat there overwhelmed. Have you ever been so overwhelmed that you basically did nothing but try to compose yourself for seven days? This gives us some idea into how difficult it is to wield the word of God and to stand in the place of a prophet. Daniel often also speaks of being overwhelmed by the revelation that he's received. As he mentioned in chapter 7 in our scripture reading, he says over and over again throughout his book that to receive God's word, to unveil God's word, it basically drains you of all of your strength. And so here we have a scroll that is far greater, far more powerful, far more significant, and there's no human being who can bear the weight of it, who is considered to be worthy to open it, except one. And that's what you see there in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This elder, he knows that the search through heaven and earth and hell has gone on in order to demonstrate the unparalleled worthiness and greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. The universality that we see here in the text, heaven, earth, under the earth, it continues throughout the chapter. Verse 6 will refer to all the earth. Verse 9, every tribe and language and nation. Verse 12 has a universal blessing, a sevenfold blessing upon God, this expansive thought. And then verse 13 talks about every creature, adding that to all the heaven and earth and under the earth. And throughout the book of Revelation, this theme is going to continue. This universality, this all-encompassing view, the grandest of scope. This is what we have here in this final drama of Scripture. But let's get back to the unparalleled greatness of the one who is worthy to open the book and break its seals. Let's read verses 6 through 10. The next part in our outline, we've talked about the scroll, the angelic proclamation. Now we come to the point. Why has the throne room of God been unveiled? Why have we learned about the 24 elders and the living creatures and the worship of the Creator? Why has all of this been reintroduced to us when that's already been well known and well documented in Scripture before? Well, it's to lead us up to the presentation of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as he is described in verse 5, the Root of David, the one who is conquered. And so let's read together verses 6 through 10. So we get to the climax here. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see here, Daniel 7 has been reiterated, has been brought back to our attention. God is on the throne. 
The Son of Man is being presented before him. His kingdom is a kingdom that is never going to end. He is going to have a people who will reign on the earth, and it's all because he was slain, and he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now let's go back to the beginning here in verse 6. You see in verse 6, he has been told about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has conquered, who is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And when he turns, he doesn't see a lion, but instead he sees a lamb. The lion is the icon of power, nobility, and fierceness. The lamb is not. What an amazing contrast. What a surprising paradox. The lion is the lamb. And he's not just a lamb, as as harmless as a lamb is, but he's a lamb who has been slaughtered. And yet he is alive. That word slain is, is the same word that is used for butchering. It's a violent death. And the lamb is standing. He's not dead, but he's standing as though it had been slain. And he was. This is not saying that he didn't die. He did. As he said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I became dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. He's described as not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also the root of David. And these titles, he's a many-titled person. He's got the most titles of any human being, and he's worthy of all of those titles. These titles come from the Old Testament prophecies concerning him. And I want to show you one here in Genesis chapter 49 about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why is he called that? Why is he given that title? Well, it's because all the way back at the end of the first book of the Bible, God made a prediction about the people of Israel that the king of his people was going to be from the tribe of Judah. And this is how that prophecy was worded. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the prophecy of God's rule didn't start in the book of Daniel. It goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible and even before this verse. And we're told that he is the one who is from Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And the root of David, as you have there also in verse 5, that the elder used to describe the one who is conquered, that comes from another Old Testament prophecy, the book of Isaiah. You can read about that, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. But for time's sake, we'll skip over it here together. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 is all about the root of Jesse, who therefore then is the root of David as well. And then finally, he's described as the one who has conquered. And this goes back to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who is the victor. Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus is the victor. He is the hero of all of human history. And he is the hero of human history because he is a lamb. Lion is only used once here in the book of Revelation to describe Jesus Christ. But throughout the rest of the book, he will be referred to as the lamb. Over 20 times he is referenced as the lamb in the rest of the book. This lamb who has been slaughtered, this goes back to much Old Testament prophecy as well. Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover lamb. Isaiah chapter 53, describing the one who was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. And this lamb is also unusual that he's alive even though he was dead. He's also unusual in that he has seven horns. Normally, lambs don't have horns. The grown-up sheep can have some horns, depending upon the breed. But here we have a lamb with horns, and he doesn't just have two horns like you might expect, but he has seven horns. And this lamb also has not two eyes, but seven eyes, as it's described there in Revelation 5, verse 6. Seven horns represent his perfect strength. He is almighty. He is perfect in power. There is nothing that he cannot do. 
That's the number seven, representing fullness, completion, perfection. The seven eyes are the Spirit of God that is sent out into all the earth, representing the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, observing the evil and the good, as the Scripture says. And so there are basically two ways that you can defeat someone. You can defeat someone through sheer strength of might. You can overpower them. Or you can defeat somebody through cunning. You can outsmart them. But Jesus Christ, being almighty and all-wise, he cannot be overpowered, and he cannot be outsmarted, and so he is undefeatable. He is the victor. He is the one who conquers because of his innate power and wisdom. That's encouraging. Your brother, our Lord, is almighty and all-wise. What do you have to fear? Let's then take a look at his actions. We see his titles. We see his appearance. Let's take a look at his actions in verses 7, 8, and 9. You see, he went to the throne. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne after it was demonstrated that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy. He boldly goes forward. And the Father rightly gives him the scroll, recognizing his worthiness. The Father is the first to acknowledge his worthiness, which is then going to be sung about by all of heaven in the following verses. He emphasizes Jesus Christ going and taking the scroll in verse 7. He repeats it in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll. He didn't have to repeat it, but he repeats it because he's bringing the dramatic action before our eyes. He wants you to picture it. He wants you to feel like you're there in heaven's throne room, and you see Christ going up to the throne, and you see him taking the scroll, and you see then the 24 elders and the living creatures falling down before the Lamb and singing a song of praise. Turn with me to another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 63. Back before Daniel and Ezekiel, you have the book of Isaiah, the first among the prophetic books in our Old Testament. And I want to read for you Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, at least. You'll see why as we look at them. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have treaden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Who is there that can judge the nations? There's no one. Who is it that can help God in what he has to do? There is no one. His own arm brought him salvation. He did it all himself. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 5. Who is worthy to bring God's purposes, to bring God's kingdom, to bring God's judgment, to bring God's salvation? Only God. And so you see, that Revelation chapter 5, being the most Christ-exalting chapter in all the Bible, is a very powerful proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. Only God can do what Jesus Christ does. And therefore, it is obvious to anyone who has eyes to see that Jesus Christ is God. Come back with me to Revelation And that's why we have, in Revelation chapter 5, the worship of the Lamb that follows. These living creatures, the 24 elders who had just been worshiping the Creator on His throne in the previous chapter, now in verse 8, they fall down before the Lamb. 
and they sang a song to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now, as we said, only God is worthy of worship like this. This is heaven's worship. This is the worship that we give to the supreme being. And God will not share that worship with any creature. There is forever a distinction between the creation and the creator. And as we see, Jesus Christ is not a creation, but he is the creator. He is the redeemer. When we come to the end of the book, John will be so overwhelmed with the revelations that have been given to him that he makes the mistake of falling down before the angel who showed him the things that he saw and gives worship in this fashion, falling down before worshiping the angel. And you know what the angel says? He says, you must not do that. Worship God. If Jesus Christ is worthy of worship, then Jesus Christ is God. There's no other way to think of it. Those who do not worship Jesus Christ as God in this manner do not know God. They do not know Jesus Christ. And they do not have salvation from sins. John 5.23, written by the same author as the book of Revelation, seems that God chose John to write most powerfully and most potently on the deity of Jesus Christ, although it's found throughout all of the scriptures. But here in John 5.23, Jesus said that everyone needs to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, it's okay for us to honor one another. We're told to honor one another. I'm supposed to give preference to you in honor, to honor your father and mother. Many ways that we're supposed to honor one another, but not the same way that we honor God. God is on a totally different level. And yet, Jesus was able to say, his own disciple writing his words down for us, that we are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very important to understand that. If a so-called church does not honor the Son the same way that they honor the Father, the way that it's written here, recognizing his eternal deity, then they do not honor the Father. They don't have the love of God in their hearts, but they are deceived and led astray. Very important to help those who might be in our community and who are lied to and led astray on this most foundational, most important doctrine concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? That's the question that has to be answered correctly or else you have no knowledge of God. I want to make that clear. People's eternity depends upon it. All right, so as we see the worship then of Christ, notice that the focus is on his sacrifice. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. A ransom paid to God to pay for the sins of people so that we might be ransomed from sin, ransomed from death. Jesus Christ was the lamb that was sacrificed in accordance with the sacrifices that were the pictures of his ultimate sacrifice in the law of Moses. The day of atonement. All of that showing that there has to be a substitute. There has to be an innocent sufferer in the place of the one who deserves the judgment so that the demands of justice can be satisfied and the guilty can be set free only by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes all of this possible. For what would a kingdom on this earth be like if there were no redeemed people in order to inhabit that kingdom? It wouldn't be the glorious kingdom that God desired to give to his son if there's no redeemed people in the kingdom. 
And so before Jesus Christ comes back to judge the nations, before God comes back to execute justice on the earth, he came the first time in humility and in meekness to offer eternal life, reconciliation, salvation to all of those who were underneath his wrath they could be set free and be restored to him to be able to have the hope of being in his kingdom when he comes in power and in glory. You see, the praise of the Lamb is because without the redemption of those from every tribe and language and people and nation, then Christ would not have a glorious kingdom, but instead you would just have a vast graveyard. But because he has conquered, because he did not love his life even unto death, because he accomplished what no one else could accomplish and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God, now it's going to be a glorious kingdom, a joyous kingdom, full of worship and praise from redeemed humanity. Everything that follows in the book of Revelation is built upon Christ's substitutionary death his vicarious death for the sins of the redeemed who have been chosen by God. We are saved, we belong to God, and God is going to give us, underneath Jesus Christ as king, the world that he created for humanity, Jesus Christ being the ultimate man and the savior of the world. We will reign upon the earth. Now, notice that the salvation of mankind goes to every tribe and language and people and nation, this universal language, which is a great text for Missions Month, a missions focus like we have in our Hymn of the Month, focusing on the story that we have to tell to the nations that is going to turn them from the darkness to the light, that every tribe, every language is what God is sending his message to, and he's saving people out of every tribe and every language, and we get to be a part of that work. We got to hear about some of that work that's going on as the Bible is continuing to be translated and taught among tribes and languages that have never been able to hear the gospel in their own language before. And that work continues. And through our prayers and giving and through our encouragement and support, we get to be a part of the worldwide evangelism that is continuing. And it will continue until God has saved everyone that he wants to be representative of humanity in his great and glorious kingdom. The brotherhood of man is accomplished under the fatherhood of God and our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea that we want the world to be at peace, we want mankind to be united, we want wars to end, world peace can only be visualized by gazing at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope. He is the Prince of Peace. And mankind can search for peace and unity everywhere else, but until they search for it in Jesus Christ, they will not find it. Oh, how mankind had such high hopes heading into the 20th century. They thought, oh, we've invented so much. We're going to feed the world. We've written such amazing documents about liberty and freedom and man's rights. And we're going to make the world a utopia. And those very same people who thought that they were going to create a utopia created the worst disasters the world has seen up to this point in the world wars and all the atrocities that were committed during that time period. Don't put your hope in mankind. There's no one who is worthy among mankind to bring humanity together. There's only one. Give your worship to him and to him alone. And worship him the way that you worship God because he is God. He's God in the flesh. The scene broadens one more time in verses 11 through 14 as we see that not only the intelligent part of creation, the sentient part of creation, but every created thing, the rocks, the trees, the dirt, particles of light, Everything that God has created gives praise and honor and glory to him. In our final part of our outline this morning, the worship of all creation. Let's read verses 11 through 14. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders 
the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This sevenfold praise to God in verse 12, this is the praise that we give to the Lamb, that He's going to receive the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the might and the honor and the glory and the blessing because He is the Lamb. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, all of the universe gives the honor. Whether they want to right now or not, God receives the glory and the power. So, a few points of application. Number one, why does God write these things down for humanity? They're not just written down for us. They are written down for us, but we have a story to tell to the nations. Part of that story is the book of Revelation. And in telling the story of Revelation to the nations ahead of time, God has set it out. Every language that has a printed alphabet has the book of Revelation, and people can open it, people can read it. Why has God done that? Same reason he did it then. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when God told Jeremiah to take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations, words against the lamentation, the woe, like Ezekiel was talking about, from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today, why does he want it written down? It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God wrote down his judgments before they happened so that people could read it and repent. That's the call that we have to all the nations, all the people in Nebraska all the people in the United States, all the people around the world, judgment is coming. You are a rebel against God. You cannot win. You cannot outsmart him. You cannot overpower him. Your doom is sure. It's written exactly what God is going to do. Be smart. Be wise. Bow your knee to the creator. Bow your knee to the redeemer. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He has died for you. Why would you die in your sins? Why would you continue to rebel against the all-loving, all-powerful, all-good creator of everything, including yourself? That's the message. Repent and worship the one who created the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. Repent and worship the one who has been the Lamb of God who has died and is alive forevermore, worship him. Worship him as God and God alone. Secondly, for those of us who have done that, I want us to take from this chapter a new appreciation for the book of Revelation. As awesome as the book of Ezekiel is, as awesome as the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel is, None of those men were worthy to open up what is in this book. This book could only be revealed by one prophet, Jesus Christ himself. Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads them aloud. This is the ultimate revelation. Value and treasure what God has given to you. And then finally, remember to worship Jesus Christ. May God give us the heart of worshipers, not just to our Creator, but to our Redeemer. And think about this as you worship Jesus Christ. Life is completely futile and meaningless unless Jesus Christ saves. All of human history, apart from Christ, human destiny, meaningless, apart from 
Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if mankind builds starships and goes out and colonizes other planets. Meaningless apart from Jesus Christ. Our life as individuals and all of humanity tied together, the universe itself, it all hinges upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so worship him, honor him. Let's pray. Father, we sense that we are not worthy to worship you and your son, Jesus Christ. We feel like we should shrink back into the caves and the holes in the earth and hide ourselves from the glory of your presence because we are mindful of our sins. We are mindful of our hardness of heart and our rebellion and our foolishness. How could we approach you and give you worthy worship? And so we thank you that those who were unworthy, you have made worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. His birth in the stable, His death on the cross, walking out of the tomb on the third day, His ascension to your right hand, His opening of the scroll and reading the judgments and lamentation and woe, His coming again to save His people and establish His kingdom. He alone is worthy. And in our unworthiness, we magnify the worthiness of the one who has given us righteousness. He has given us hope. He has given us love. He has given us joy that we had no right to and never would have had, except because of your amazing grace. We praise you for your power. We praise you for your wisdom. And we praise you for your grace. For without it, we would be in a state of overwhelming fear and terror at your power and your wisdom. But now, because of your grace, Father, we rejoice in your power and your wisdom. And we glorify Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask you for wisdom and power to be able to do it better day by day. For your honor and glory. Amen.